But one of the most familiar uh, declarations that Paul gives us carries a great declaration, as I say, and also a great prerequisite to it. The verse should be very familiar to you. If you were with our, us at our conference this past uh, week ago, uh, you know the verse very, very well. The verse I'm referring to is Philippians 3.10. Paul says there that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being made conformable unto his death. Paul's goal is to know Jesus Christ. And from the conference last week, it should be clear to us that knowing Jesus Christ as he's referring to it is not an intellectual knowledge of Jesus Christ. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about knowing the facts of Jesus Christ. Rather, he is declaring his desire to know Jesus Christ intimately in a way that he knows no other person on earth. He wants to know Jesus Christ so well that he can feel his heartbeat, so well that he can get a vision of the ways he thinks and the way that he moves. And the reason for that he has set that goal is because Paul learned soon after, soon after his conversion, if he was going to be Jesus Christ to his world, as he was called to be, he had better know Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul's world was completely opposed to Jesus Christ. Uh, Paul's world was made up of those who approved of the persecution of Christians and even the killing of Christians. Uh, to Paul's world, the only good Christian was a dead Christian. <laughs> Uh, they were never going to see Jesus Christ in Paul unless he knew Jesus Christ so intimately that he would shine out from him in every interaction. And our world has a very similar approach, attitude to Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, they're not killing us yet. I'm sure some would like to. We're not at that point yet. But it's happening all over the world this morning. Uh, most in our world disregard Jesus Christ like those in Paul's world did. And our world needs to see Jesus Christ just like Paul's world needed to see Jesus Christ. And so we need to pattern our lives after the Savior. Now, the only way to pattern your life after somebody else is to know that person intimately. Uh, the way that, that you would know him like no other person so that you can model after them. And so Paul, again, wanted to know Jesus Christ so that he can be like Jesus Christ. Well, our goal also is for our world to see Jesus Christ. That is the goal, to know him. So what's the prerequisite? Well, you're not going to like this. I didn't like this when I read it, but here it is. If you're going to know Jesus Christ, you will know him through the fellowship of his sufferings. Amen. That's how you're going to know him. If you want to know Jesus Christ the way Paul's talking about it here, suffering must be a part of your experience on this earth. Now, I'm sure as I say that, most of us are not real keen on that idea. Most of us, if we had our choice, would rather not go through suffering. If someone gave us the, the option of being sick or being well, my guess is you'd want to be well. My guess is if somebody gave you the choice of walking a rough road or walking a smooth road, I'm sure most of us would choose the smooth road. And that's why I had you read the verse this morning for our scripture reading in Psalm 119, verse 71. Again, Paul says there, it is good for me that I've been afflicted. It is good for me that I've been afflicted. David says affliction is good. Now, that's not probably your opinion this morning, if your flesh is speaking. Uh, that's not the opinion of most in this world. Why did David say that? He said that because of the rest of the verse. It is good that I've been afflicted. Why? That I might learn thy statutes. Or if I could rephrase it, Paul, David is saying, I'm glad that I was afflicted because through that affliction, I learned to know God. What Paul declares in the New Testament is a truth David declares in the Old Testament. If we want to be the presence of Jesus Christ in our world, we must know Jesus Christ intimately. And whether we like it or not, one of the main ways that God has designed for us to do that, to get to know him, is through affliction, through the fellowship of his sufferings. Amen. Now, if that's the case, and I believe it is, 
And if that's truly what we want, which I hope that that's the case also, then the book that is all about suffering of God's children would be a great place for us to focus our time and do our study of the book of Job. I first did a series on the book of Job back in 2004. I did another series out of this book in 2012. And I really believe this book is so important to us learning to be like Jesus Christ that I made a promise to myself that as long as God allowed me to teach his word, I'd do a series out of this book every 10 years or so, which is probably not often enough. And so 10 years from now, if we're still together, prepare yourself to go through the book of Job again. (laughs) We'll do it. We'll just keep on doing it until God, Jesus Christ, comes back. So what I want to do this morning, I want to begin a series of messages from with you out of the book of Job. We're going to go verse by verse through this book, and as we do that, we're going to learn from the Lord exactly what this book is all about. We're going to learn why God gave us this book and what, we're, what we can learn from the sufferings that Job went through. And hopefully, as we do that, we will better learn to know Jesus Christ, and as we better learn to know Jesus Christ, we'll be more like Jesus Christ to our world. Amen. Now, there's times when we go through this study, I'm going to warn you, it's going to seem more like a Bible study than a Sunday morning message. But part of my goal as we go through this book is to go below the surface. There is a great deal of the book of Job that we're not aware of. And I want to take us below the surface if we can and encourage you also to do study on your own on some of the topics we bring up as you go through this. Now, what I want to do today is just do an overview of this book. Uh, I try to make this message not too dry and not too technical. But at the same time, we need to lay a foundation for this book because this foundation is going to... uh, govern our rest of our time as we're in the book as we go through it. So I want to get the basics down in this book so that when we go through it, it will be better able to understand what's going on and what God wants to teach us through it. So the first thing I want to go through this morning as we go into this is I want to uncover the background of the book of Job. Uncover the background of the book of Job. And the first question I want to ask is, who wrote the book of Job? Who wrote this book? Now, we may assume, since Job's name is on the book, that he's the one who wrote it. But that's not the case. And I say that because Job was in way too much misery. He was to be writing a narrative about the suffering he's going through and his feelings about them as he's going through that. If you're sick, very, very, very sick, you have no interest in writing down what's going on. (laughs) That's just not on your mind. So somebody else had to write this book. This book is called the book of Job, not because Job wrote it, but rather because it's about Job. So who wrote it down? Go to Job chapter 32 as we start. Go to Job 32, and let's see if we can discover who it is that wrote the book of Job. Job 32. Now what you're going to find as you go through this is we're going to find enough information in this chapter, I believe, to tell us who it was that wrote the book. Uh, This book up to this point is written in the third person. It's written from an observer who's watching what's going on and writing down what's going on. Uh, Somebody has been observing what Job is going through, what his friends have been saying, and writing that down as it happens. But then in chapter 32, the fourth of Job's friends, Elihu, begins his discourse. And the first few verses of chapter 32 follow the same pattern being written in the third person. But I want you to notice verse 15, Job 32, 15. It says, they were amazed. They answered no more. They left off speaking. When I had waited, for they spake not, but stood still and answered no more. All of a sudden, this verse, these verses take a switch. They, they make a change. It's now writing not in the first person, or third person rather. Now it's writing in the first person. Now that verse tells us apparently Job's three friends stopped talking and were amazed that this young man Elihu would be so bold as to speak up and confront them like he was. In describing his reaction to that scene, Elihu begins to speak. 
And he writes as though he's writing these words, speaks rather, as though he's writing these words himself. Again, look at verse 16. When I had waited, for they spake not, but stood still and answered no more. I said, I will answer also my part. I also will show mine opinion. The only time the first person is used in this book is when Elihu speaks. And therefore, that points, I believe, to the fact that Elihu is the one who wrote down the words that were spoken as these four men were talking. So all of Scripture is given by inspiration of God. God inspires people to speak words, and then God has others write those words down. In this particular case, I believe Elihu was the one that God used to write down the words that were being spoken as Job went through his trial. So that, I believe, answers the question of authorship. Here's the next question. When was this book written? When was this book written? Go back to Job chapter 2. Back to the beginning, Job chapter 2, and look at verse 11. Job 2.11. This gives us some information about the ancestry of Job's three friends. It says, Now when Job's three friends heard of all this evil that was come upon him, they came everyone from his own place, Eliphaz the Temanite, Bildad the Shuhite, and Zophar the Naamathite. For they had made an appointment together to come to mourn with him and to comfort him. Now, we won't take time to do this this morning, but if we looked at this genetic line given to us uh, as a starting point here in Job chapter uh, 2, we find that all these men had ancestries living at the time of Abraham in Genesis chapter 25. So we can assume from that this book was written during that time of the early patriarchs. Now, what about Job? Do we have any information about Job's uh, ancestry and his life? Well, I'm not going to have you turn there this morning. In Genesis chapter 36 and verse 33, we have a man mentioned by the name of Jobab. His name is Jobab, J-O-B-A-B. That may actually be Job. It's very possible. What we know is this. Uh, In the scripture, especially in the Old Testament, many men were given two names. They were referred by two different names. We have, for example, Jacob and Israel. The same man, two different names. Now, the man Jobab listed here in Genesis chapter 36 is actually in the line of the kings of Edom. So this man Jobab was probably a king in Edom. Now, if that's the case, it's possible Jobab could actually be Job because it's at the same time where the three friends also lived. Job would have lived during that time as well. So it's consistent with all that, also consistent with the geographic area that they're in. It's very possible that Job was a king in Edom because in Job chapter 1 verse 3, go there if you would, Job chapter 1 and verse 3. His substance also is 7,000 sheep and 3,000 camels and 500 yoke of oxen and 500 she-asses and a very great household so that this man was the greatest of all the men of the east. Greatest of all the men of the east. In Job chapter 19 and verse 9, Job speaks of having his crown removed from his head during the time of his conflict, during the time of his difficulty. So prior to his misery, it's very possible that Job was a king. Now, we can't say for certain that Jobab is actually Job. Certainly indications that point to that. And no one else mentioned early in Scripture that matches the description like Joab, Jobab does. Although we can't say conclusively that's who it was. The final question I want to ask is this. Where does this book take place geographically? I'll look at chapter 1, verse 1. There was a man in, in the land of Uz. So Job lived in the land of Uz. That's where he's from. That's where the the book takes place. Uz is actually a person mentioned in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 23, and he's a descendant of Shem through his father Aram. In Genesis 36, 28, Uz is mentioned again, this time connected with Edom, the land of Esau. 
Lamentations 4.21 also refers to us as a place in Edom. So, if we have connected all this together like we should have, it's possible that Job was a king living in the land of Edom when his calamity occurred. Now, here's the deal with all that. Another name for us is Petra. Petra is the place of the rock. Petra is a very significant place in prophecy. If you follow that place through scripture, you'll find the protection and the sustenance during the time of the tribulation is provided in Petra. It's this place where God will take care of his remnant so they'll not be destroyed by the Antichrist. Here's the other significance about that. And I like this a whole lot. Uh, We know that as believers in Jesus Christ, we have found our place in the rock, the rock Jesus Christ. This is where we find our safety. This is where we find our security. This is where we find our sustenance. I'm not going to have you turn, though. You probably know it well. Deuteronomy chapter 32 is a great chapter in Scripture that talks all about God being our rock. Capital R, rock. No person and no circumstance can move him in any way. And because we're in him, nobody can move us either. We're in the rock. Listen to Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 4. He is the rock. His work is perfect. For all his ways are judgment, a God of truth and without iniquity, just and right is he. God, in the person of Jesus Christ, is who you run to in times of difficulty. He, the rock, Jesus Christ, is that one that you rest in when life is overwhelming. That rock is your place of security. No matter what comes, you are sheltered, safe in the rock of salvation, Jesus Christ. Interesting that all the while Job is going through his suffering... He is settled in the land of Uz, the place of the rock. I find that very, very interesting. I think that gives us a, a picture to us as believers. We are all going to go through difficult times, folks. You know that. Some of you are going through them right now. Some of you have just been through one. Some have one waiting for them. And when life begins to deal things to you that you weren't expecting and maybe weren't prepared for, realize that everything that happens to us happens to us while we are firmly settled in the rock. That's the place you are as a believer in Jesus Christ. Nothing can get to you because you are settled safely in the rock Jesus Christ. But what I find interesting also in Deuteronomy chapter 32, it also talks about other rocks, small r. Let me read you Deuteronomy chapter 32 and verse 31. It says, therefore, their rock, small r, is not as our rock, capital R, even our enemies themselves being judges. There are people in this world today depending on small r rocks to get them through. Small r rocks. There are things that people look to to find help when difficulties come, and they're small r rocks. People always have their substitutes, and the world and the culture always offers things that seem to be an alternative to that which is true or right. I'm going to tell you something this morning. If we seek our comfort in small r rocks when times are tough, they will do us no good whatsoever. The things this world offers, the things the experts offer as fixes, things like positive thinking, things like worldly philosophies, escapes like alcohol and pornography and drugs, they may soothe for a time. There is no lasting help there. And anybody who tries those things can tell you that's the case. When I need comfort, I need to go to the rock. When I need assurance, I need to go to the rock. When I need peace, I need to go to the rock. When life is tough, I need to realize that I am settled firmly in the God of heaven. That's where my rock is. And although I can find support in family and in friends, the place to go and the place to rest when storms come is in the rock, Jesus Christ. 
If you're a believer this morning, folks, you'd be a fool not to go there. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ this morning, you'd be a fool to go anywhere else. You may have forgotten who you serve and who saved you, but when the times of difficulty come, you need to remember he's the one who did it. Go back to him. Find your place in the rock and settle yourself there and let him handle the difficulty for you because he is more than capable of doing that. If you'll just let him do it. What we find ourselves often doing is going to small R rocks. You know one of the greatest small R rocks that I go to? Myself. I better not stand here. I'm going to get a feedback, you guys. Satan's in it. Oh, just have, we'll have to push on through it, I guess, huh? We go, I go to myself to find help when I have these difficulties. I'm a small R rock. <laughs> I don't have the wisdom. I don't have anything that I need to get through what I'm going through. I can't do it. And if I look to myself and try to devise a way myself, try to plan myself through that thing, I'm going to fail every time. And why would I even choose to do that? I've got the capital R rock there helping to wait, wait, waiting to help me. <laughs> why would I go to myself or anything else? I go to the rock of my salvation. I go to the stone that the builders rejected. I run to the mountain, and the mountain stands by me. The earth all around me is sinking sand. On Christ, the solid rock I stand. When I need a shelter, when I need a friend, I go to the rock. <laughs> Job survived his storm, not because of his friends, not because of himself, as you'll see in the weeks ahead. Job survived not because of his family, as we'll see in the weeks ahead. Job survived this, this trial that he went through because he knew that ultimately his strength and his salvation were located in the God of his faith. Amen. And if we gain nothing else from this study, folks, we need to gain that from this study. That's the picture we hold on to when the dark days come. And I'm going to tell you, they're coming or they're already here. So there's the background of the book. Next, here's what I want to talk about. I want you, us to understand the context of the book of Job. Understand the context. God does nothing by chance. Everything God does has a purpose. Everything God does has an order to it. 1 Corinthians 14.33 make it very clear. God is not the author of confusion. If there is confusion, God is not at the base of that. God's a God of order. And if we take time to understand what he is doing and understand the purpose behind it, I believe God will so show, uh, reveal some amazing things to us. Now, I want you to think for a moment about the order of the books in the Old Testament. You probably don't think about that a whole lot. I'd like you to think about that for a minute. You may think there's no pattern to that. You may think somebody just threw those books in, into that Bible, just tossed them in there, and they landed however they landed. Here's what I think. I think God had a hand in every part of that book. I don't think God allowed anything in that book by chance. I think every word in the word of God is exactly what God wanted. I believe every punctuation mark in that book is exactly what God wanted. I believe every chapter and verse marking in that book is exactly what God wanted. That's why we don't touch the book. We leave the book alone because God set that book up. Here's what I also believe. I believe the arrangements of the books in Scripture are also exactly what God wanted, that they have a purpose and reveal truth to us as a result. And so I'd like you to think for a moment about the positioning of the order of the books where Job is placed in that order. Our understanding of Job, especially as it relates to prophecy, is revealed to us as we look at the way that it is placed in the Word of God. Now, if you go back a few books, you're going to find four books, the books of Kings and the books of Chronicles. Kings and Chronicles give us the history of the story of the deterioration of the kingdom of Israel and the destruction of the temple. That's what those books contain. 
Uh, the temple was actually destroyed twice. You're aware of that. First, uh, by Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon in 586 B.C., and the second time under the hand of Titus and the Romans in 70 A.D. After the destruction of the temple, the next event prophesied by many of the prophets of the Old Testament was that someday the Jews would return to their land and reestablish themselves in Palestine. The book that follows Second Chronicles is the book of Ezra. What is Ezra an accounting of? The Jews returning back to their land. They show back up there again in their homeland for the first time after the first destruction. However, it seems prob- uh, probable that the book of Ezra points to a second time when the Jews return to their land again. And history shows us a modern fulfillment of that prophecy as a little at a time during the First and Second World Wars, the Jews began to occupy that land again, just as they had in Ezra the first time. Here's the problem with the second return. Although they were in the land, they were unprotected by hostile neighbors around them. Boundaries needed to be established if they were going to survive. And in 1948, the unthinkable happened. Israel became a nation with defined borders and specific boundaries. And it's very interesting that the next book in the Bible is the book of Nehemiah, right after Ezra. In Ezra, they return to the land. In Nehemiah, uh, there's no walls around the city to protect it from the enemies. The city is defenseless. So in Nehemiah, we have the establishing of boundaries, of borders around that city, around Jerusalem. Just as Israel set up boundaries and defenses in Nehemiah, uh, so the creation of the Jewish nation in 1948 uh, saw uh, Israel establish borders around themselves as well for the entire world. And by the way, what you see going on right now over there is because of that. They didn't want those boundaries established, and they're fighting every way they can to disestablish those boundaries. That's what the war is all about. What you've, what you've witnessed, folks, in, our, in your generation is the political boundaries of the nation of Israel, just as Nehemiah gave account of the physical boundaries around the nation being established back then. Now, what is the next prophetic event on God's calendar? The rapture of the church. And then it's followed by God's direct dealings with the Jews during the seven-year tribulation. The book after Nehemiah is the book of Esther. What is Esther about? Esther is a story of a Gentile queen, Vashti, being removed and being replaced by a Jewish queen, Esther. You know what you're waiting for today, folks? You know what you're waiting for right now? You know what may happen before we leave this place today? <laughs> uh, you may uh, find uh, God calling you out of this place. You, as a primary Gentile bride, may be called out of this place and taken up, uh, the church taken up by the rapture and being replaced by what? A Jewish remnant. <laughs> Jehovah's restored bride, the Jews. So the Gentile bride primarily is taken out, and God puts his focus on the Jewish uh, remnant that's left behind. Who is that? That is Vashti and Esther. Interesting. Now, if you follow the story of the removal of the Gentile queen and being replaced by a Jewish queen, after that, you have the book of Job. Okay, so we have the rapture of the church in the book of Esther. What do you have in the book of Job? A book that describes the most terrible time anybody has ever gone through. What you have uh, during the book of Job is a description of what it's going to be like for the Jew during the tribulation time. Because you see, folks, the next prophetical event after the rapture of the church is a seven-year period where God deals directly with his people, the Jews. And what you're going to see as we go through the book of Job is many types of the tribulation as we study that book. Now, let me be very, very clear about this, and I know some people debate this. I don't think there's any debate to it. God's people, the church, will not go through the tribulation. You're not going through it. I don't care what anybody says. You're not even going through half of it. You'll be out of here before that thing ever starts. 
But if you have unsaved friends or unsaved family and they refuse to trust Jesus Christ before he returns, the book of Job shows what they're in for. That book is a description of what it's going to be like during that time. And my hope is as we go through this book, it'll motivate us to do all we can to lead those folks to a saving knowledge of Jesus Christ. Or invite them to church for them to see for themselves what, the, what life is going to be like what, and what awaits them if they don't know Jesus Christ as Savior. So what, it's worth mentioning, let me just move this a little bit farther before we get back to the book of Job. After the book of Job is the book of Psalms. Psalms is a book that chronicles David's heart during his rise to the throne of Israel. What happens after the tribulation? We have the thousand-year reign of Jesus Christ. Psalm, prophetically, is a picture of the Lord Jesus Christ as he assumes his throne, the throne of David, and reigns over all the earth. Now, I just want to stop here and tell you something, folks. You've got an amazing book in your hands today. <laughs> that is a remarkable book. Find me anybody who could take all the events of the world and lay them out in the order of a book uh, before anybody even knew they were going to happen. And lay them out perfectly, just like it's going to happen when the time comes. And you've got several different authors doing this over a vast span of time. And yet there it all is laid out for you in the order of the books. I'm going to say it to you one more time, although I'm sure none of you would. I just want to say it so I feel better. Don't mess with the book. Don't mess with the book. Just leave it alone. Let it stand just as it is. Amen. Don't change a word. Don't change a punctuation mark. Don't change the order. Let it all stand just like it is. That book is a fantastic, amazing book. So what you have here prophetically is what the Job, book of Job reveals to us is about coming events planned for this earth. The book of Job prophetically is focused on the events that will occur during the time of the tribulation. And I think that's going to become abundantly clear to you as you go through this book and as you begin to see the connection between what Job is going through and what the Jews and the world will go through during that time. So we've uncovered the background. We understand the context. Now I want to utilize the application. I want to utilize the application. Uh, you are aware there are two rules of Bible study that are important to us. We want to really understand the Word of God. The first one we've just looked at, we look at the context of the book. We will never understand what the book is about or what a specific verse is about if we pull it from its context. Leave it where it is and look what's around it, and God oftentimes interprets His Word uh, by doing that. He will always interpret His Word, I should say, by doing that. No verse of Scripture ever stands alone, and you can't understand that unless you look at what's around it to understand what God is really trying to say. Here is the second rule of application. Uh, that is that we read God's word not to interpret it. We don't read God's word to put our meaning to it. I've heard people say over and over as you present the word of God to them, well, there's many interpretations to that. No, there isn't. There's one interpretation, God's interpretation. <laughs> Everything else is just us trying to shove our meaning into it when it shouldn't be there. So we do not interpret the word of God. We simply read the word of God, leave our opinions out of it and see what God's word says, because God's word says what it means and means what it says. Amen. My job as I study the word of God is to see what it says and then make application of it. Apply to what to my life, what he's trying to tell me. Now, we've said before in Second Timothy, chapter three and verse 16, all scripture has three applications, historical, doctrinal and spiritual or practical. Three applications. And those three applications will all be part of our study of the book of Job. And I just want to briefly give an overview of those this morning before we close. First of all, all scripture is history. That is the greatest history book you're ever going to find. Because that is an infallible history book. Every other history book you read is going to have uh, 
facts, but also interpretations of those facts. In this book, you've got just a laid out history with no interpretation to it. And it's accurate because it's God's perspective on it. So everything in this book occurred at a specific time and involved real people and real events. That book is historically accurate and is inspired by the one who controls all of history. He knows it better than anybody else. And so to understand God's word, you have to understand the historical context and see how it applies from the historical point of view. I know what the tendency is, at least I'll speak for myself. As you read through the word of God, sometimes you lose track of the fact these are real people with real things really happening to them. This is not a story. This is not an allegory. This is not some kind of a parable. This is real people going through real things at a real specific period of time. And so it's not fiction you're reading here. This is reality. This is nonfiction. No matter what other application we may make to the word of God, understand that Job was a real person who went through these events that are described in this book. And we've looked at the genealogy of Job. We see he can be traced back to Genesis. He was a true living person historically. It's fascinating for me to think Job might have known people who knew Noah and talked to those people. He might have talked to contemporaries of Noah. Uh, The creation of the world was just a few generations prior to Job, if we have the placement right. The creation of the world was just a few, I'd say a few years in our context, sort of like the Civil War to us. Fascinating. That's where Job lived. And what you're going to find, especially as you get toward the end of the book, is no book apart from Genesis provides us more information about the creation than does the book of Job. It is chronologically probably the oldest book in the Bible and gives us fascinating insights into how God communicates and deals with his people. So that's the historical application. There's also a doctrinal application. Doctrine refers to teaching. Our faith is built upon doctrine. And folks, I'm going to get off the course just for a second and say to you, what is missing in most modern churches is a teaching of doctrine. They're working on what they feel, what they think, what they believe, and they're missing to look at what God thinks and what God believes. (laughs) And you'll never have a good faith until you have a faith that is based in sound doctrine, and sound doctrine comes from one place, and it's that book right there. (laughs) That's where your doctrine comes from. And when you miss that, the church begins to shake because you can't have a solid building on a shaky foundation. And that's why so much is going on in the church today, because the foundation has been shaken. And Satan has done a very good job at crumbling the foundation. So uh, doctrine is an important part of us, uh, basing an important place, rather, I should say, to base our faith. Everything God does, whether it be through the word of God or in your life, God does it to teach you something. God always has something he's trying to show you with everything you go through, no matter what that is. And so God will teach you something uh, through what you go through. And the word of God is built upon the idea that what happened in this book is there to teach us doctrine. God uses his works. God uses the person of his son, Jesus Christ. And those things are presented to us to teach us doctrine. And you'll find in the Old Testament pictures of Jesus Christ and pictures of God's work, types, if you would, that show us again what God is trying to do in our lives through those types. That book comes alive, folks, and you realize that is God talking to you and teaching you something you need to know. You can learn about your God in so many ways by looking at that book and realizing what he's trying to show us. Now, as we've already mentioned, and you're going to see it more clearly as you go through it, the tribulation is the main focus of this book. And the tribulation is focused mainly on the nation of Israel. And so Job as a type is a type of the Jew going through the tribulation. Doctrinally, this book gives us insight into what it's going to be like during that time, that horrible time when God's full wrath is placed upon this world. 
Now, to make it clear, there are many, uh, there are several parallels, I should say, between the book of Job and the tribulation. I want to point out just a few of them to you. Again, I mentioned to you at the beginning, uh, this book takes place in the land of Uz. That is the place of the rock. That is the place where the Jews will run to and hide when the tribulation comes. You're also aware, and you're going to see that as we read the first part, Job sits in misery for seven days as his friends look on him speechless. He sits there for seven days and nobody says a word. His three friends come there to an appointed time and say nothing to him for seven days. You're aware that the tribulation is going to last for seven years. That seven is very important in the book of Job. As we see in Revelation, the entire tribulation lasts for seven years, but the real time period of the trial, the real trial comes at the last three and a half years. That's when the Antichrist will declare himself to be God and set himself up in the Jewish temple. Uh, Three and a half years is 42 months. How many chapters do you have in the book of Job? 42. Just a coincidence, I'm sure. But you see, 42 months... 42 chapters, one more connection to Job being a picture of the Jew going through the tribulation. What you're going to find as we go through this book is that Job is being attacked by the devil himself during this trial. Now, anyone who has, is truly living for the Lord has had some attack from some time, someplace time to time. But I'm going to tell you something. Very few of us can ever say we have been attacked personally by the devil. I don't count enough to be attacked by the devil. He's got more important people to worry about than me. <laughs> We are attacked by satanic forces. Satan has his emissaries he sends out, but not the devil himself. But in, Gen- in Revelation chapter 12, we find that during the tribulation, Israel is attacked by the devil himself, just as Job was. At the end of the book of Job, you'll find Job is restored back to his place of honor. All that he had was returned to him. And what you find in scripture is that at the end of the tribulation, Israel is restored back to the position they had before, back to that position of honor, and they are again God's chosen people as they were in the days of Abraham. Folks, as you go through that study, doctrinally, this, through this book, doctrinally, you're going to find over and over again, I believe, connections to the end time, that time of the tribulation. As we understand all about that, get a greater understanding as it is enhanced by the life of Job, hopefully, again, it will motivate us to do all we can before that time comes. I'm going to tell you, once that time comes, if a person's living on this earth now, they won't be saved. They won't be saved. A very, very few, if any, are going to be saved if they've heard the gospel here will be saved during that time. Now, there's one more application I want to give you, and that's the personal application. Every believer who reads this book has an application to your life personally. Now, if you've read commentaries on the book of Job, or if you've heard messages out of this book, series out of this book, you're going to find that most people will say the main theme of this book is why do the righteous suffer? The main theme is why do bad things happen to good people? The main theme is why do negative events occur in the lives of those who are living for him? As you study this book, you're going to find something out. That question is never answered. Never once. Never once. As Job's friends talk with him, it's their belief that those things were happening to Job because of some great sin in his life. They harp on that over and over and over. They feel like nobody could suffer as Job suffered without having somehow deserved it. And each of those friends speak. And then finally, Job, uh, God speaks himself directly to Job. And in all that God says, let me tell you, never one time in all that God says, does God ever tell Job why this happened to him? Job never gets an answer from God about why it happened. He doesn't, God doesn't talk about Satan's attack. 
He doesn't answer why all these things occurred in Job's life. He says nothing. Listen to me. Job went through this entire issue, this entire trial, and never once learned why it happened. Now, he knows now. He knows now. He didn't then. I'm going to tell you something that's going to be very disheartening, perhaps, to you, but you need to hear it. When you go through a trial, God does not always tell you why he's doing what he's doing. If you're waiting for that, you may be waiting a long time. Because oftentimes God doesn't do it. You can demand that from him. That does not force him to let you know. Instead, when God finally does speak to Job, instead of referring to the tragedy, he gives him an incredible lesson on the creation of the world. Read through those, we'll read through those last few chapters. As we read through that, God never once references Job's trial. <laughs> Remarkable. The very thing Job was going through is a thing that God completely ignores and focuses Job on a completely different place. You see, here's the real message of the book of Job, I believe. I believe the real message of the book of Job is that when good people suffer bad things, sometimes they never really know the reason why it happened. We sometimes never learn the real reason, the real story behind our sufferings. Some things happen simply because they are beyond our understanding and are things simply that we don't need to know. I know folks who get so caught up in wanting to know why God does things. As though somehow we could understand the mind of God. <laughs> and if God tried to explain it to us, we couldn't get it anyway. Because we're not equipped to do it. Some things that happen in our lives, I will say many things that happen in our lives, are simply because God wants to do them, there's a purpose to them, and we don't need to know why. Can I make this as personal as I possibly can, as honest as I can? I have no idea why we're here this morning. I don't know why we're not still over there. We were fine over there. <laughs> the place was fine for us over there. I wasn't looking to go anywhere else. Here we are. I can't tell you why. I don't know why God had us buy that property across the street. That seemed like, I, I know that was God's will. I have no doubt about that. You may doubt it. I don't. <laughs> but for whatever reason, God decided that wasn't where he wanted us. I don't know why that is. I will not know why that is until I see him. And by the way, when I see him, it's not going to matter. <laughs> I couldn't care less about it by then. That's just to me a perfect illustration of God doing things and having a plan that he works. And we have no idea why he does it. All God wants you and I to do is follow him by faith. Just let him lead. You will not understand where he's going. You will not understand the path. You will understand the turns and the shifts he makes in that thing. Don't try to understand that all. Uh, just go with the plan and follow him. Here's the focus of the book of Job. Not why do good people suffer. Rather, how should good people realistically and biblically deal with the suffering that does come into our lives? It's going to come. How do we deal with it? In a way that will honor God and honor Jesus Christ. And I believe as you go through the book of Job with me, you're going to see a model of how a believer should respond when difficulties and trials come into the life of a believer. One of the practical lessons you're going to find from the book of Job is he's going to, he's going to teach you how to respond when afflictions come. But there are several other lessons as well in this book. We're going to find this as we go through. This book is all about spiritual warfare. It's all about Satan's attack and how to deal with Satan's attack. Folks, listen to me this morning, and you know this. I want to reinforce it in your mind. You are this morning in a spiritual battleground. You are a target of Satan's attack. Whether he sends it himself or takes somebody else to do it for him, there is somebody or something out there to knock you down if it'll work. And you may again think I'm crazy, and I'm sure you think that a lot. 
I find it fascinating that as he made this move the last two days, we had six people get sick. Why would that be? Of all times, why now? I know why. I know why. Because we're in spiritual attack. We are in a spiritual battleground. And Satan wants to defeat us any way that we can. And what, our, what, we learn, our, what we learn is our lives are affected by powers that are beyond our sight and beyond our understanding. And listen to me, out of our control. And you learn through the principles in the book of Job how you respond to those spiritual battles when they come. So there is a historical application. There is a doctrinal application. And there is also a personal application. You are going to get to know your God in a greater way as you go through this book. And you're going to get to know your God in a greater way as you go through suffering. Because that's going to be the way God is going to teach us how to grow in Him and learn Him and grow in a way that would please Him and help us learn ways to honor Him and to deal with the attacks of the devil when they come so that He will flee from us. Amen. Go to Psalm 119. Go to Psalm 119. And look at verse 171. I want you to read this out loud with me this morning. We read it at the very, during, during our scripture reading. I want you to read it out loud with me, if you would. Psalm 119, verse 71. Let's read it out loud, strongly together. Sing it. Say it. <laughs> it is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. One more time. It is good for me that I have been afflicted, that I might learn thy statutes. What did your flesh do to you when you read that? Your flesh said, no way. <laughs> No, 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 no. I can't do it. That's what the flesh wants you to believe. David says, it was good. It was good. As David looked at his afflictions, he said, I'm glad God did it. I'm sure that Job would have said, he didn't, we don't see it here, but from all we can infer from it, I'm sure at the end of that trial, Job said, praise God for it. Praise God for it. Listen to me. Job went through that trial. At the end of that trial, he met God face to face. Now, was the trial worth it? (laughs) I mean, if you could talk to God face to face and hear God speak to you directly, wouldn't it be worth the trial? You know what? He'll do it. He may not come. He won't come to you in a vision. He won't sit on your bedside and talk to you. But I guarantee you, when that trial is over, whatever it is, if you handle it right, you'll hear from God. And you'll know it's him. You'll know it's him. You won't be at any way confused about who's talking to you. Folks, what we want to do, I'm going to speak for all of us. I hope you're right about this. What we want to do is know Jesus Christ in a way that we know nothing and no one else. Now, I've talked about this for two years. I want you to search your heart this morning. Do you really want to be Jesus Christ to your world? Is that the desire of your heart? Is that the passion you have? Is your passion to show Jesus Christ to your world? If so, there's only one path to get there. The fellowship of his sufferings. The only way to do it. Uh, You'll not learn it in the good times. You'll learn it through the suffering. And you will get to know Jesus Christ in a way that you know him and have never known him before. So here's the question. No invitation this morning, just to take this and think about it and walk home with it and see what God says to you about it. Are you willing to know him and are you willing to do whatever you need to do and go through whatever you need to go through 
to know him. Is that the passion of your heart? Are you willing to accept whatever trial you're going through right now? Accept whatever trial God put you through in the future? Are you willing to accept any of it to know him better? That's the question. Is that your passion? Now, there are things you can do to make that happen. But if you really want to know him, you must accept the suffering is going to be a major part of that process. And that affliction, if it's going to work in our hearts, to do what God intends for it to do, we must manage that in a way that God designed for us to manage that. And this book, this book of Job, is your manual for how to do it. This book is going to show you how to go through trial and glorify God in the midst of the heartache, in the midst of the pain, in the midst of the difficulty. We're going to see from this book how God worked in the past, how he is working today, and how he plans to work in the future. And greatest of all, he's going to show you how he wants to work with you. If you're committed to knowing him, even if suffering is a tool he must use, then as we see from the book of Job, God will reveal himself to us in ways that we never knew possible. And that knowledge will make us the servant and the witness that he's called us to be. If you go through that suffering and handle like God wants you to handle it, you will be Jesus Christ to your world. And if that's what you want, it's guaranteed through the fellowship of his suffering. Let's pray.